0: This is episode 35 with Kimberly Seals Ailis, an award-winning journalist nationally recognized in the United States as a maternal and health strategist and advocate for breastfeeding and infant health. And today we'll be talking about her book, The Big Letdown, how medicine, big business and feminism are undermining breastfeeding and setting mothers up to fail and making mothers aware, more aware of what's going on on behind the scenes so we can change motherhood.
1: The ways that it plays out, big and small, the way women are set up to fail, particularly in those early days, and that impacts their ability to breastfeed. Now, this is why when people are like, oh, it's your choice, actually, we're all being let down by the system to varying degrees. Some of us, due to perhaps income or status, are able to do a bit better, but we're all being let down by the system.
0: Hey, moms, are you tired of being tired or maybe yelling at your kids, or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum, or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all, or just to become a more confident mom. If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms. And also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Citrus Love Podcast, keeping your motherhood inspired. Have you ever breastfed or maybe you're pregnant or maybe you've thought about having kids and you're like, hmm, I'll definitely breastfeed and then I'll stop at this time and then this. You basically have a plan, a set idea of how it's gonna happen, but then you give birth and maybe it's harder than you expected. Maybe you can breastfeed naturally. Maybe you don't enjoy it. Maybe there's so many people telling you you should do this and you should do that and then you have to go to work and there's all these other factors that can affect your ability to breastfeed. But this episode is not about what we usually talk about that breastfeeding is good and breast is best and all that that. We're not talking about that today. What we're talking about, well, what my guest is talking about is everything else that's happening that goes on in society to indirectly make you decide how breastfeeding is gonna happen for you. Get ready because this episode holds nothing back. My guest, Kimberly Seals Ehlers, is very direct about the reality of breastfeeding in North America, especially the United States, where she's from, and the big business behind it. So maybe you're on the breast is best camp or maybe you're on the anything that makes my life easier camp, but regardless, being well-informed is the best thing you can do for yourself and your baby. This conversation, because we talk about multiple factors that is affecting motherhood today in North America. So, With that being said, let's talk a bit about today's guest. So Kimberly is a divorced mom of two. She's an award-winning journalist, has worked at Fortune magazine, been senior editor at Essence magazine. She is nationally recognized in the United States as a maternal and health strategist an advocate for breastfeeding and infant health. After having gone through her own breastfeeding journey, which inspired her to focus and research this, she's been featured in CNN, New York Times, Good Morning America, Cooper Anderson. She's a frequent contributor writes for New York Times, Washington Post, Huffington Post, and five-time author and author of the book Big Letdown, which we'll be diving deep into today's discussion. Make sure to visit her website. I'll link everything on our citruslove.com website slash episode 35. You'll find all the links to everything we speak about today, all her resources. She also has some incredible webinars that are available online. Talking about breastfeeding, birth without bias, and so much more. She currently has a new workshop coming up end of July. So July 31st registrations open. She is hosting a special writing workshop in August for National Breastfeeding Awareness Month. Breastfeeding equity that needs a new narrative. So she'll lead two workshops during the month of August. So registrations open Friday, July 31st. She is on mission to question, challenge and disrupt and and then reimagine how we talk about birth and breastfeeding and then breaking down the many structural barriers that women face that w- in these areas. So the goal of this is to make you aware and create new conversations and a new motherhood experience, and a countercultural movement in infant feeding. If you do enjoy this episode, make sure to share it. Take a screenshot, post it on Instagram, post it on our f- on Facebook. Make sure to tag me on Facebook at Citrus Love Blog or on Instagram at Citrus Love Podcast. So we do love to see who's sharing these conversations. So without further ado, let's listen in to her conversation with a very colorful and bold mother of two. So welcome, Kimberly. Thank you for being on Citrus Love podcast. I'm so happy to finally have you on today because before this pandemic, COVID-19, you were traveling all around speaking on panels, promoting your book your work as a birth and breastfeeding advocate and talking about many different topics for maternal mental health and infant health. So thank you again for being yeah, here.
1: thank you for having me. I'm super excited to um to just- Speak with you today and talk about things for parents.
0: We'll be focusing a lot on your book today's big letdown, how medicine, big business, and feminism undermine breastfeeding. And I have to say that one of the topics that I found, since becoming a mother, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, breastfeeding seems to be a sensitive topic for a lot of mothers. And it's a topic that people tend to push their recommendations. Are you breast? eating or using formula. And then they tend to ask why, but why are you doing this? So it creates a lot of confusion and shame and anxiety for mothers or pregnant mothers about what's the right way and what's going to be the best way for their baby and for themselves as well. Yeah. Yes. And, I, and I think that, you know, breastfeeding, remembering that it's the
1: one thing that women uniquely do, however you define a woman or, a, you know, people with mammary glands. And so it is interesting to note that this issue, which is obviously highly personal, becomes everybody's business when you're doing it. Right. And so, you know, I, I don't like to disconnect what's happening to women and their bodies away from the way society views women, who owns women's bodies. Uh, we know that breasts have been used to as marketing tools for years they are used every day to sell chicken wings and beer right? And so <laughs> yet when women just dis- choose to use them for their actual biological purpose, then it becomes a quote unquote controversial conversation or to your point, a discussion for everybody. And I think that's the bigger issue um, to better understand why is it that, you know, women's women's breasts have become a sensationalized, commercialized, and then turned into a flashpoint when women are just doing what, they were made for. They are literally mammary glands. (laughs) So um, it's important to understand the context about why women are having these struggles and, and facing these challenges.
0: I've seen posts online where a man would see a woman breastfeeding in a cafe and not fully covering up and it was talking. One thing I'm curious because in your book, it's incredibly well researched and you you went deep and it was investigative work. You published it in 2017, but how long did it actually take you to prep this and all the content? And, and I'm sure you must have at some point had challenges actually getting answers on certain things because you went to the big multinational baby formulas companies and all that to get some answers. So can you talk about that um, process?
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, so just for those who may not know, I am a journalist by trade. I was a a writer at Fortune magazine for many years, as well as a senior editor at Essence. I covered Wall Street for the New York Post. Rupert Murdoch sent me to London. I worked at the Times for several months on the business desk. So, So, you know, reporting and research is at the core of everything I do. And so it was really important to me to bring that kind of journalistic rigor to the book. And so I spent probably, I mean, you know, even getting to the point of getting a book deal is is a lot of research. And so there was a lot of front end uh, research just in terms of the developing the concept to get it to a point where someone would want to sell it. Um, And then definitely at least it was a little bit over a year. I've done my other book, probably I call them all my babies. So they (laughs) usually have taken me around nine months, but this one was definitely a delayed delivery. It took um, a little bit over a year just in terms of all the writing and research. And you're right. You know, um, there are many times where the research process was stalled. Uh, I know one one, for example, was when I was making requests of certain universities to see their funders. I think there's been an interesting correlation between certain academic institutions that have put out research either that the benefit of breastfeeding are not what we think they are or, you know, some sort of sensationalized mm-hmm. headline about breastfeeding. And so many of those in- institutions, I went to them because a few of them are public and asked them for a list of their funding sources, which is public information. And, um, you know, many of them were very hesitant, took forever to respond, you know, despite my repeated request. And so some of those types of um, analysis that I wanted to do definitely, you know, took a little bit longer for me to get compliance from some of the academic institutions and even some of the companies that I wanted to uh, write about.
0: And one thing I know you mentioned in the beginning of the book, and I think it's important to mention before we talk about everything, is each mother has a unique breastfeeding or experience with feeding their baby and their physical body, going through the changes um, once they give birth, and that the information shared today is not medical recommendation. You're not a physician or lactation specialist, as you said, but just sharing what you discovered about what's going on on in the outside influences that does affect how a mother chooses or woman chooses to breastfeed or to feed her newborn once it's born so for you listening at home the mother the mom to be if you have any concerns or specific questions about your health or your baby's health you should definitely consult a medical professional for recommendations so i just wanted to put that out <laughs> before we get yes, into I it yes agree very very important your book, what we'll be talking about today, and I do share a few passages from the book, it's focused mainly on what's been going on in the United States. But I do want to mention that for the Canadian woman mothers listening, it's all very valuable information. Apart from this specific statistic, this is a topic that will help you make the right choice for yourself. What's really going on behind the scenes of what we're being told from posters and from doctors and everything. And that's that's important because I
1: think for all women, you know, we've all been influenced by feminism. We've all been Mm -hmm. influenced by commercial interests, no matter Mm -hmm. what country you live in. And so whether you breastfeed or not is not the goal of the book. The goal of the book is to explain to you the factors uh, and and influences and things that are going on that, you know, have played a part and whether and whether you actually can, quote unquote unquote, choose that and what's your likelihood for success. So really just helping women to understand the environment around them that has played a part in their ability to choose that option um, and, and to do it for any meaningful duration. That is something that I have seen in many, many countries. So it is concerning.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's start with how you experienced it yourself. I know you shared your journey, your story in the book, but for the listeners, can you share your own experience and struggles with breastfeeding as well as your experience at the hospital after you give birth? How was it for you those first few weeks? Yeah.
1: I mean, for me, I, you know, thought I breastfeeding would be easy. I did not really think about doing anything else, but I was very surprised that even at the hospital, that my own wishes around breastfeeding were ignored. My baby was given formula against my wishes and I had to really fight to have my directives, you know, listened to and heard. And that was deeply troubling for me. And, you know, in the days afterward, I, I struggled. I did not really understand that breastfeeding was going to be challenging. And I think this is something that I've been very vocal about the way that the media often, you know, glamorizes Mm -hmm. breastfeeding. And, you know, you see it as women are in a field of daisies and everybody (laughs) is so calm and beautiful. And I was, you know, kind of like struggling and, and desperate and crying and all those other things. And so I think that we really have to work on that disconnect between what we have been told And what the lived experience of breastfeeding is for many women and not necessarily because the act of breastfeeding itself is hard, but the experience of it can be hard. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, many of us um, perhaps have moved away from our uh, closest family members. You know, we used to breastfeed with our moms and our aunties and our grandmothers as like a collective thing. And many people are disconnected from those uh, traditional support groups. Mm-hmm. I found for myself, there was no local support group. I was driving, you know, 20 something miles back to the hospital that I delivered at just to go to a group that met, you know, once every two weeks. And so this idea of where support is, and then for me as a black woman really didn't have any kind of peer groups, Couldn't didn't really have many black female friends who were also breastfeeding. My mother had not breastfed. So she was not really, you know, she was encouraging, but didn't know how to be supportive. And then somewhere along the lines, you you know, when I was having trouble, you know, the same women in my family who had been very supportive of me in college and graduate school and my career in journalism, you know, said things like breastfeeding is for poor people. Why are you doing that? You know, and so it was really confusing for me to understand um, why there was so much kind of mixed messaging, why there was this unique response among Uh, you know, my black friends and family, why there seemed to be this lack of structural support. And so all of these things really were challenging for me. Um, And so I have a lot of respect and gratitude and and awe for the women who continue to to do it. Um, uh, And, you know, I'm always saying people are successfully breastfeeding, not because of, but in spite of the many challenges that are out there and the ways that we're not supported. So that what was part of what led me on this journey to write this book.
0: Mm hmm. Which year did you
1: give birth and where were you located? So I have two children. I gave birth to my first child uh, in 2000 and I was living in New York City. I was actually just completing my my, uh, graduate school program at Columbia University. So that's where I gave birth. And then I had my second child, my son, four years later.
0: You say that when you were at the hospital, they didn't even ask you and they gave your baby formula. Was it because they saw that you weren't able to breastfeed and they just gave it right away? Uh, no, I
1: was able to breastfeed. I, it said on her isolette. This baby is being breastfed. They have a special sticker and a note mm-hmm. that they put on. Um, I don't know why they said she was hungry and I'm like, well, here I am. And also, I mean, this is part of what we know exists in hospitals where, you know, nurses and uh, often they have been overly influenced, many of them by infant formula companies who won and for many years literally paid hospitals to design maternity wards. And when the infant formula companies, architectural uh, design firm designed maternity maternity wards in many hospitals, not just in the U.S., but uh, in many developing countries, the maternity wards put babies far away from mothers. And so that's what would happen. A baby obviously gives feeding cues, which may be rooting or moving their hands. Those cannot be seen oftentimes in a busy nursery where nurses are overwhelmed. Then the baby starts to cry. Now, then when the baby starts to cry, you've got to wrap it up and do all these other things for it to leave and go through your security. So By the time it actually gets to its mother, it is so frustrated, it is not going to feed and then at that point they'll just tell you to give it a bottle um versus really understanding that none of us wants to wait until we've screened for 30 minutes to be fed, right? Mm-hmm. That wouldn't be acceptable for anyone. Um and so understanding how even the design of some maternity wards especially you know my my first baby is is almost 20, you know, was also contributed to the ways that women were not fully supported in breastfeeding on um, the ways that they were almost set up to all automatically have a challenge. When we know that having your baby close to you, one brings in your milk and two, getting that baby on you, especially in those early days, because it may take a little bit more time and effort to get that colostrum out is, is critical for that baby not to be exhausted and have been crying before.
0: I read on what was going on in Canada because I was curious to see the difference. Because reading your book, I wanted to see if there were some similarities. And I've spoken to a lot of mothers that get given birth recently. And the common thing I found in Canada was fed is best. They don't seem to push formulas in the hospital, they seem to push breast milk, and it creates a lot of pressure on certain moms when they're struggling, it creates shame and frustration of not being able to feed their own child. And I've spoken to a mother in the United States who gave birth recently. And when she had her first child, she was absolutely traumatized by the lack of support she got in the hospital. So I do see some differences at that level. But what I keep hearing from mothers is fed is best woman that eventually would like to have kids but they're not informed properly and they say what's the difference Uh, they're both gonna feed your child anyways so breast milk or formula it's feeding your child if it wouldn't be good it wouldn't be sold so you're seeing a lot of mixed messages i agree that all babies need to
1: be fed but we have to also understand that infant formula, though necessary, it needs to be there. It is a substitute product and it is not made by public health companies. These companies are not interested in the health of your baby. They're interested in making money. Mm-hmm. And that that was, you know, coming to this work as a business journalist, I took a lot of time listening to the company's calls, listening to their analyst calls, the ways that they talk about their business. And I talk about this a lot in the book. And really for women to understand that, you know, no one is saying that formula is hard. Horrible. But please understand that it is being marketed and made by companies that are really interested in profit motive and not about infant health. And many of the other studies have shown that the claims that they are making are not accurate, that they pretty much have this formula on its own has not changed in its you know constitutional base in 40 years, right? So, but what they do is they, they do a marketing survey that says, oh, mothers in the US are concerned about sleep. So they'll take that same formula, add the marketing to that this is going to help your baby sleep. They do it there. Oh, moms in Canada are concerned about obesity. So now they, they have that. Now what you're seeing is because we're in the middle of a global pandemic, all of a sudden they are marketing saying that their formulas can help with immunity. So these are all marketing gimmicks. And so what I say to women is that not that I have any problem with infant formula per se, it needs to be there for the people who need it, but certainly women deserve to have a a product that has not been unethically marketed. Um, They don't deserve to be the targets of campaigns that are not based on science and they deserve to have the truth. Right. And so Mm -hmm. actually the truth is best and knowledge is best and all those things. And so so that's really my concern. And also this idea that any product could be comparable to what your body creates, I think speaks to a larger issue. And, And that's what my concern is. There has never been one study that has proven infant form to be better than breast milk. It just doesn't exist. The best they can do is try to say it's as good as, but Mm -hmm. never, there has never been one scientific study that has proven infant form to be better than breast milk. It just can't be. And so, you know, it is one thing to understand its limitations and we use it anyway, but it's another thing to try to glorify it into what it's not, which is really just the function of clever marketing.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I want to go back to that, but I just want to touch on something that really hit me when I I read about it in your book. And I really want to focus on that is you said how breastfeeding is not necessarily a personal choice. And I found this interesting because as a mother, we think, well, it's my body. It's my baby. It's my milk. I'm deciding how I'm going to feed it. I want to just read a passage from your book from Gopal identified the fatal flaw in breastfeeding messaging and that's the matter of choice saying that women are courted as the sole decision makers on infant feeding without considering how women are being influenced by societal barriers, partners, relatives and marketing influences. That being a mother is not an identity we rally around because we're told that mothering is demeaning work and we're left to defend our choices and that most lactations problems are not medical, but emotional or psychological, and that a lot of mothers are looking for more support from other mothers to help them through this breastfeeding experience and journey and how to be able to do it. Can you talk about this, about the matter of choice? Yeah, I think that um, this is a real
1: issue because I often say to people like choices are within choices, right? And so your choice, for example, like the way we understand food deserts, right? So your choice to eat healthy is actually a function of what is easily accessible to you, right? How far you have to drive to get to a supermarket and do you have a car to get there and Mm -hmm. what is affordable, right? You know, we all call whole foods, whole Whole paycheck, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that eating healthy is a choice without looking at the factors that influence your ability to exercise that choice is dangerous. And so the same way, given an example here in the U.S. where we do not have a federal paid leave and we're the only industrialized nation that does not have a federal paid leave. I mean, and I literally am in my work on the ground, you know, speak to mothers who are going back to work seven days, 14 days after giving birth. In fact, the study showed that 25% of women in the U.S. return to work uh, 10 days after childbirth, right? That's crazy.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: if you are having, if you're being forced to go back to work because you need to feed your family, is breastfeeding really a your Risk for you? It really isn't. Right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe you can pump, maybe you could, you know, do that, but. It really isn't a true choice for you. And so when we fail to acknowledge that choices are within choices, that may be a choice in terms of your job. Yes, even with my son, when I went back to work, I was able to continue pumping, but I had an office, right? I, I don't work in a manufacturing plant. I don't work at Starbucks or Walmart. And so when, when we're saying these things without understanding how that actual choice is, is accessible to others and how it is not, we are having a very privileged and blinded conversation conversation, and that what I hope women can move past.
0: You also mentioned the book that if in the United States, women had longer maternity leave, whether paid or unpaid, it was associated with a decline in depressive symptoms and overall improvement in maternal health. And of course, if your working environment does not help with giving you a comfortable place to pump. I remember when I had my first baby and whenever I'd leave the house, I would be incredibly stressed out of thinking about, okay, I have to plan where I'm going to feed the baby because I don't want to make others uncomfortable. Is there Mm -hmm. a toilet? Is there a dark corner? For working moms, the anxiety around this, if the workplace doesn't accommodate, it makes it even more difficult to actually want to (laughs) feed. Of course, these are the things and
1: to your point. So now you feel you feel comfortable if you get to stay at home. But even that is a privilege. Women have things to do. You have Mm -hmm. people going to school, you have to run errands, you might have other children. And so if breastfeeding is only kind of feasible, if you get to stay at home and not have to go out and have the stresses that you're talking about, you know, that's, that's a luxury that very few women have. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to remove this, this kind of stress and social stigma around, particularly as you're saying, breastfeeding in public, because that is where people have the most anxiety. That's where the media plays a part in sensationalizing breastfeeding in public, because now you feel like it's is potentially dangerous, right? Who wants to do something that could get you kicked out of of a cafe or an airplane? So this language, and these are the things that I'm talking about, the ways that breastfeeding is kind of socialized and, and sensationalized in our society is very damaging to all women. And because of that, there is a public health consequence. You mentioned what we know about breastfeeding in terms of, you know, postpartum depression. We know what breastfeeding does in terms of immunity. Right now, we're in the global pandemic where your ability, you know, our ability to produce children with good immunity is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is a time for us to be thinking about this, not just as a choice issue, but it's a public health issue.
0: And one statistic you shared, which I found surprising was that studies show that less than 5% of women are physically incapable of breastfeeding. With everything we're hearing, you'd think that that number would be much higher. But from what I understood in your book is a lot of that was emotions uh pressure we put on ourselves and we think that breastfeeding is naturally hard and we're not going to be able to do it correctly the first time or because other mothers say it's a challenge it's one of the most challenging things with having a child and breastfeeding mm-hmm. is a cultural thing yeah depending on where you're living right and so i mean i think that breastfeeding
1: you know is is difficult, not necessarily the act of getting your breasts into an infant's mouth. But I think that, you know, the the experience of it all, the stresses, and I think that is very much connected to the stresses of motherhood, right? So you think of breastfeeding, feeding your baby is your first job as a mother, right? And nobody wants to fail at that. You want to be good at that. There's a lot of pressure, particularly, you know, in our social media world to be good at everything. Mm -hmm. Motherhood, mothering itself has become a competitive sport, you know, and so Women are facing a lot of pressure. We also understand that. And I talk about this in the chapter about feminism, that mothering is not valued as important work. So Mm -hmm. people, women feel pressure to do other things because mothering is is doing nothing. Right. And people talk about I got to get back to work. No, it's okay. You're working. Mothering is work. Breastfeeding is work. It's a huge time commitment. And so Mm -hmm. these are the and this is what I'm talking about. These are the external factors and the societal norms that make the pressure around breastfeeding so difficult for many women and creates an even more challenging environment when there's so much pressure mothering in those early days in the first place. And so that contributes to this pressure. And then we know that as a biological response to stress, it can literally impact your letdown reflex. So women who are stressed are going to have more problems breastfeeding. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and a vicious cycle, right? So, you know, We really have to help people understand how their bodies work um, and then deal with some of the ways that we can alleviate some of these pressure points for women so that those who want to can actually breastfeed and it could be successful because they're not under so much stress that it's actually working against their bodies.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think that there will be changes, let's say, in the United States to try to adapt the structural barriers for motherhood and to kind of fix it to become more a family friendly system? Well, I don't think we have any hope in this administration, number one. (laughs) Um, We
1: certainly, you know, have gotten a lot further in previous administrations. One of the things that we've been focusing on is state laws, even though we don't have a federal law, we do have several several states that have stepped up to fill in the gap. I live in New York and New York state has one of the more progressive new uh, paid leave policies. And so we've been working on this issue on a state level, you know, in in the space where the federal government has failed to step up um, and and probably will not do so, particularly in this ridiculous administration. But the other thing that I do want to say is that I think the global pandemic has forced us all to reevaluate a number of things. You know, we are seeing that companies are offering sick leave, things that we did not even even have in the U.S., which we hope can become a mainstay and also a stepping stone to say people need paid leave. You know, many people were able to get paid leave to care for a sick relative, right? And so how do we value care work and understand that people may need to get paid time off to do to deal with that? And whether that pay, you know, caring for a relative who may have COVID or caring for an infant that you just gave birth to, that care work is important and it needs to be paid time off. So, so hopefully this, you know, there may be a silver, aligning uh, in terms of understanding this value. Also, you know, seeing mothers being forced into other roles in terms of, you know, mothers have become teachers and everyone mm-hmm. is schooling at home. And so how can we use this as an opportunity to revalue the unpaid labor that women do? So really looking at how we can leverage um, and I've been having these conversations through an online series with folks. How can we leverage these new awakenings and, and, and awarenesses that have kind of opened up during this pandemic as a way to um, move the agenda for women and mothers forward?
0: Mm -hmm. And I also noticed that you had posted on your Instagram how during this pandemic and lots of people not working, how to pay for baby formula and some were maybe rethinking. I mean, you can't rethink when you've stopped breastfeeding, but that was an interesting perspective you mentioned
1: about that. Yeah, and I think well, there's a lot of misinformation there. What we, what I, and I wrote a piece for the Washington Post about a surge in interest in relactation, and there are specific types of specialists who work on relactation. Sometimes it can depend on how uh, how long it's been since you stopped breastfeeding, but many women in, in the space of the global pandemic, seeing the infant's formula uh, supply shortages on shelves, wanted to go back to feeding their babies with their bodies, or at least having as a backup. Up and we you know, actively researching how to increase milk supply or how to relactate so much so that it was almost overwhelming, you know, folks to who were interested in this. And so I think that every global health policy agency, the World Health Organization, UNICEF, everyone has said, CDC has said that breastfeeding in, in an emergency you know, being able to feed your baby with your body is the best emergency preparedness plan there is, right? And it is easy to say, as you know, people are saying, Fed is best until there's a global runner infant formula. The shelves are empty. People are posting videos on Facebook crying that they can't purchase infant formula. And now many women are really scared. So mm-hmm. this is why like, it's easy to say those things, but the realities of life tell us that being able to feed your baby with your body in a full capacity or as a backup is one of the most important things a woman can do, you know, in, mm-hmm. in that period of her child's life. And so I, I hope that we got that lesson loud and clear. Relying on a product that you can't control in a global pandemic or a war or whatever the case may be is not the best thing, is not best at all, mm-hmm. at all.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the, which we've talked about a bit, the big business of milk formulas, the companies that are gaining profits from all of this. You say in your book that the infant formula companies are undermining breastfeeding success and that our breasts have become profit centers for pharmaceutical companies and breast milk substitute manufacturers who benefit from selling us messages that we will fail. So obviously if we can't breast Feed. They're making money selling the formulas. So what are other messages these companies trying to make us fail in, in a way? And I think it's important to understand,
1: again, these are global for-profit companies. And so for them to increase their market share, for them to continually increase revenues and have profit growth, which is the goal, they have to A, get fewer women to breastfeed or B, make sure that women breastfeed for shorter duration, right? So there's only one way for them to make more money. I mean, now we see them creating this whole follow-up milks and product beyond 12 months and trying to get people to buy other things. But in that critical early period where they hope to hook you, that's how they do it. And so they have a, vested interest in breastfeeding failing. That is part of their goal. One of the things that I was mentioning, even in this research, when I was listening to the analyst call. So, you know, as a publicly traded company, the CEOs, they talk to Wall Street analysts, they talk to shareholders, and they speak actively about their business model, the ways that they are infiltrating markets, the ways that they are, you know, looking to expand market share. So one of the things that was interesting, particularly in the U.S., was even though uh, the CEO in this particular call was acknowledging that breastfeeding, rates were increasing. He was also looking at the employment rates of women because he knew that when women go back to work or when women are working, they are less likely to be able to continue breastfeeding. And so mm-hmm. he was literally talking very publicly about how he was looking at the rise uh, in, in employment rates om- among women as a reason for that there would be less breastfeeding and a way that they would be able to grow market share, right? So he's so much aware that breastfeeding and work is a barrier that they are counting on that in their very public projections. And so, you know, the fact that infant formula companies are aware of the barriers and that they exploit them is, you know, is, is part of my concern. Not that they can't make money. Uh, we live in a capitalist society, but how they do that uh, which often includes, as we mentioned, claims that are not true, marketing tactics that undermine women, peddling in fear and doubt, making people feel like they won't, paying huge sums of money to hospitals just to have the right to give away formula there. I mean, it, it's all it's all bad for business. <laughs>
0: and another thing is, as a mom, you know, if they say studies show that research show, we often think, well, it's research, it must be true, but we don't necessarily know who Who's financing that research? And that's one point you made in the book, how if it's financed by one of those big companies that's factoring baby formula, then of course, there's a bias in the research of what they're sharing and how Mm -hmm. um, they're getting results. Yeah, and that goes back to what I was sharing earlier around me looking at these academic
1: institutions. I mean, you know, many researchers need money, and uh, many physicians and, and, and you know want to be able to do research. And the pharmaceutical companies have been very happy to use their deep pockets to fund research, but that the outcomes have been questionable. And so, one of the things that women need to do in general is just become better at understanding science, right? Because we live mm-hmm. in a society where we, to your point, we hear every day a new study says this, a new study says that. Yeah. Whether it's about a, a, the latest diet fad or should we eat milk? You know, mm-hmm. it's ridiculous,
0: right? It's hard to keep up. It's yeah. hard to
1: keep up. <laughs> Two basic questions about how many people were in the study and who funded it are really critical to us, kind of having a deeper lens to better understand the science that we're being sold, and so that is also something that I looked at in the book. Many of those universities that had science that that had produced outcomes that were, you know, somewhat doubtful or negative toward breastfeeding had received lots of money from infant formula companies, um, vaccine companies, pharmaceutical companies, and so we can't really disentangle that from from the outcomes. And we also need to understand that science itself is not fact. I I mean, scientists are really on a journey, right? And so what is the goal? To look at the body of evidence that is undisputed around breastfeeding versus getting caught up in these individual studies, which are often are questionable on both sides, on both points in terms of funding and, and subjects and so that we can get a clearer picture. Mm-hmm. And that's really important for all women that we kind of get better at that. I mean, science is creative for other scientists and the media is not doing a good job at deciphering this information
0: when you're a mother, you're not going to take the time to look at the research and who financed the research and is it true or is it not? So for the mother listening, what would you say is the easiest way to go about it? I mean, I think that, you know, it's a really
1: important question.
0: One is to definitely look at
1: the body of evidence and and not to be overly kind of concerned about one study, but look at the body of evidence. Look at studies that are actually reviews of studies. You know, these are Mm -hmm. the ways that we can do it. But the other thing that is really important, Important to me is that we also recognize the role of science, right? And so for me, I'm like, do we need science to tell us that a manufacturer can't replicate what the body naturally makes? Or is science really should be focusing on cancer? And you know, I mean, I, okay. I also just want us to balance that with the fact that we can't let our maternal intuition, our instincts Li- the things that have literally kept humanity alive for generations upon generations, we need to maintain that. And, and I wrote another piece about that for the Riveter, just really saying, listen, yes, science is important, but it needs to be balanced. It should not suppress what our maternal instincts, it should not override the things that our mothers told us, and the things that we know work. And so we really need to develop that balance. because A lot of science has been to the oppression of women. A lot of science, historically, a lot of it has just not been about centering women. And so I I also need us to think bigger about the role of science in women's lives and what role it has played really as one of the tools of oppression and not necessarily a tool for liberation for women
0: hmm. Another thing is that because often we say, well, if the doctor said it, then it must be true. I know just saying this, if there's some help that professionals listening, they uh, might not appreciate it. But I just want to be honest and, and say different aspects that we should consider.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's important. And we know when we think about again, this is the one thing that women uniquely do. But yet, even in my book, when I interviewed pediatricians, you know, many of them had only received a few hours, you know, a couple of two hours of training on lactation education. And and women aren't aware that their physicians aren't being taught about lactation management. And unfortunately, the, the culture of, of physicians is not one of uh, humility. It's usually arrogant. So instead of saying that they don't know um, or saying that they don't uh, have that information, they just recommend formula. And so, you know, we are working with them to better, to at least be able to refer out to a lactation consultant. But I think, again, this is important when we think about Breasts are what women uniquely have. Right. And breastfeeding Mm -hmm. is something that women uniquely do. And the fact that that the physicians, even those who are responsible for our care and our infants care, don't know anything about it is a woman's issue. Right. So I have this like fun social experiment that I do, Christiane, in different cities (laughs) and I find a women's center and, you know, women's health center. And I walk in, I'm like, hey, this is beautiful. A women's health center. Can I speak to the lactation consultant or can I speak to? And they were like, no, we don't have that here. And I'm like, but this is a women's center. Right. But the women's center is usually about cancer. So if your breast is diseased, there is plenty of help for you. There are plenty of resources. There are plenty of great places. There are plenty of people marching. But what about a healthy, functioning breast that actually people need information on what it does in its normal biological function? There is very little information on that. As you pointed out, there is very little science on that. There is very little uh, support in terms of the codes that are needed to be reimbursed for that. And so we, again, as women, we have to look at is it. It's like, why do I have all this support and information if my breast is diseased, but nobody who can help me if my breast is healthy? Mm-hmm. And my physician has even been taught how to support a healthy functioning breast doing what it was made to do. Come on. These are the questions that we need to be asked. And this is more important to me whether than, than to have a conversation about breast milk or formula. But mm-hmm. for us to understand these bigger issues that really should enrage us all.
0: Mm -hmm. So right now, if a woman is having difficulties breastfeeding or wants to learn how to do it correctly, right now in the state is the only way to go through a lactation specialist? Is that the only way or can ask someone that breastfed successfully? But are those really the only options? Uh yes and I mean uh, more
1: pediatricians who are now becoming you know breastfeeding friendly or are kind of doing extra things the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine is one of the organizations that works directly with physicians to increase their knowledge of breastfeeding lactation management different levels of lactation consulting but primarily yes you are seeing some sort of lactation consultant whether that is an IBCLC at the very far end of the gold mm-hmm. standard or some other a peer counselor or, you know, there are different other kind of levels of certification. But mm-hmm. that is pretty much it.
0: I'm thinking in Canada, like at my pediatrician's clinic, they have all these different specialists you can go see, but they don't have lactation specialists there. It's usually independent clinic that's just focused on that, that you have to consult with. It's very separate. Yes. And this is also this thing about separating
1: women's bodies, right? So it's like you get pregnant, then the OBGYN is there. Now after your uterus is empty, he's not interested really in you anymore. The <laughs> pediatrician is more interested in your baby, but your OBGYN doesn't care about your breast. It could be argued that your breasts are the pediatrician's job because it is related to that infant's nutrition, but he's not really interested either. And now you have to find another person to deal with your breasts. I mean, mm-hmm. seriously, it's like cutting up women's bodies to pieces and this is yes. all part of the model of making money off of women's bodies as as opposed to a holistic integrated approach that that could actually acknowledge that my infant's health is connected to my breasts right and what's going on in my uterus is connected to my infant like you know like mm-hmm. there, there are connections here that are obvious but don't work in this current system of cutting up parts to create specialties just to you know charge more money yes
0: that's all so true that's so true because even the mothers I I've contacted because I knew I was speaking with you. And they're like there's like four different people they had to see after having the baby because there's not one place that gives the woman information about the woman's health post birth. It this is separate from that and this is separate and it it gets overwhelming especially when you're a new mom and you're already tired and then you have to start finding all these types of specialists just for one thing for each one. It it's a lot. It's a lot I and mean, then we talk- around and wonder why we're stressed. <laughs> I mean,
1: it's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, and this is what I talk about. It's a setup for failure. It's yeah. a setup. It's a setup. And and these are the the ways that it plays out, big and small. The way women are set up to fail, particularly in those early days, and that impacts their ability to breastfeed. Now, this is why when people like, oh, it's, it's your choice. <laughs> you know, and 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 that part of the conversation that actually. We're all being let down by the system Mm -hmm. to varying degrees. Some of us, due to perhaps income or status, are able to do a bit better, but we're all being let down by the system.
0: I want to talk about feminism. You you wrote about this in your book, and I love, love that chapter. I almost underline all the chapter because it was so interesting to hear. <laughs> Obviously, when you think about feminism, you think equal pay, equal rights. That's the first thing that comes to mind to a lot of women I know. I want to read a few passages in the book that you wrote about mainstream feminist movements have resisted breastfeeding as a woman's right issue, framing it as being confining, restrictive, keeps the woman in the home, among other things. And that formula feeding is liberating women so they can return to work. Much of that is due to the feminist leadership who have been focused more on women having a masculinized version of womanhood instead of revaluing as the roles of a woman include mothering. The only flaw is that by looking to be equal to men, we forget to fight for the things that make us uniquely women, like our ability to birth, lactate, and produce food for our young. How mm-hmm. is that pro-woman? Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. that's powerful.
1: Thank you so much. And trust me, I took a lot of heat from that. Some of the, some of the the feminist circles don't like me much. And some of the colleges don't ask me to come, but I think it's an important moment for us to say that, you know, in the very, very important fight to be viewed as equal to men, you know, a fight that I support, but that we also forgot to fight for the things that make us uniquely women. And it really should have been an and. Perhaps the strategy was by by putting these things forward, we could get equality. Well, one, that hasn't happened. And two, um, you know, the work that we uniquely do and in terms of our unpaid labor, in terms of our care work, in terms of our mothering work has been consistently devalued. And Mm -hmm. not only is it being devalued by society, it's being devalued by other women. There was another article that I was talking about uh, recently and, you know, lots of articles about women's roles in this pandemic. But one of the women saying, oh, I felt bad that I was just being a mom or just being a mom, like yes. our own language around mothering is limiting. Right. And so we mm-hmm. have absorbed this idea of mothering being just the thing or not being enough. And, and this is a byproduct of a feminist movement that did not value that work. And of course, very important. Nobody should be forced to mother. Right. Nobody, you know, nobody should be barefoot and pregnant. That's not what we're talking about. But for those who choose the mother, right, there there should be supports in place. There should be social support and systemic support and policy support and also the support of other women that this too is an important
0: path. And instead, none of that is there. Yes, for me, I I wanted to be home with my kids before they could go to school. And this is something I was able to do. And I got so many comments just for that. Like, really? You're just going to be a mom? And you have both camps. Like the ones that definitely, yes, I'm going back to work. I can't stay home and do nothing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And It's funny how people say things. But like you said, if mothers are saying so many things about mothering and how it, it might be demeaning work and not enough, imagine what doctors and men and everyone else and women that are not mothers can actually say if they hear it from people that have kids.
1: Exactly. It's very true. And one of the things that I've been speaking out about, and hopefully you can share this link because I wrote a piece for Washington Post just around the fact that we have Mother's Day and Women's History Month. And I'm like, well, how about that we celebrate mothering as an important part of women's history? as well, and not mm. just be relegated to a day where it's mostly going to be overpriced brunch and some <laughs> some cards, right? And so and even in this way, women are taking part in the devaluing of mothering, right? Like mo- Women's History Month is only about your secular accomplishments, which are important. The mm-hmm. first woman to be a judge, the first woman to be a pilot, you know, like that's what we do. We we celebrate secular accomplishments, very important. But one, we're talking about these co- these accomplishments without the lens of motherhood. And in this piece, I talk about some very prominent women who are actually mothers and how mothering has a plays a significant role on that career journey, right? Like Ruth Bader Ginsburg has, has been one of the people who has spoken a lot about her mothering role and how that played with her role to become a Supreme Court judge. But we detach that in much of our covering of Women's History Month or our own celebration of our women's heroes, that we aren't including that mothering lens into that, which obviously for me, one, makes that journey all that more remarkable because as a mother we know what they went through to achieve that goal but also it continues this this separation of women's lives this idea that your secular life is different from your mothering life and your mothering life needs to stay hidden and only your secular life and your your you know career accomplishments are worthy of recognition this Mm -hmm. is dangerous you know these are for me core feminist issues and core ways that we as women have to rally together and do better. And and this idea that, you know, mothers are celebrated for one day and not even included in a whole month of history is problematic and, and is part of what we're talking about that contribute to the feelings of isolation and sometimes depression that women can experience when breastfeeding.
0: Exactly. Exactly. The fact of the matter
1: is breastfeeding should be able to be done anywhere, And, you know, like I said to people, I tell them all the time, one, it's dangerous because, and and I've led a lot of community projects for the Kellogg Foundation, when people don't see breastfeeding happening kind of out in the open, it creates an idea that doesn't exist. And what we don't need is a continued social invisibility of breastfeeding. So yes, it is important that we have rooms if mothers choose to use them. But the most important thing we need to do as a culture is to increase the visibility of breastfeeding so that can be normalized, right? And so the more you do breastfeeding in a closet, the more that the time that the woman does it outside, then she's shamed and and it's sensationalized. But if everybody was doing it outside, like in many countries. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Then it would just be nothing. I don't know if you remember this it was a picture a couple of years ago, but it was so hilarious. I think it was the <laughs> president of Chile or a, a Latin American country, and the woman he's in a heated conversation. The woman she's breastfeeding, literally with her full breast out. He's talking to her as if he doesn't even see this child, <laughs> and it was like, yeah, you know. I mean, I travel to other countries, even Europe and, and you know Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. breastfeeding just happens. It's not a thing. And so, again, people want to make this about them because it's about your breasts, right? Mm-hmm. No one else is worried about what your other body parts are doing. But because breasts have become everybody's, everybody's through this sexualization, through the marketing, through et cetera, it's an issue. You know, mm-hmm. it's, and so we really have to get smarter to that and, and make sure that we're supporting breastfeeding wherever it happens.
0: I agree. Have you seen any changes since you wrote the book? And what are you really advocating about right now? Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I'm most proud of about the book is
1: just the conversation that it's starting conversations like this one, where we're mm-hmm. saying, hey, yeah, that really doesn't make sense. And why is that, right? And so that's the most important part of it for me. You know, I've been really blessed to be able to travel. I think last year I was in six different countries talking Mm -hmm. about the big letdown, many, Mm -hmm. many cities. And so the fact that this is Starting conversations is one of the things that I'm most proud of um, and that women can start to we need to start questioning, not breast milk versus formula. But why why do I not have access to leave? And why is it that people care what I do with my breasts? You know, like these are the bigger questions. Um, It is in commercial interest to keep us pandering over these, you know, small items and not having these big conversations. So I'm hopeful that it can be a tool for us to have these bigger conversations.
0: Mm -hmm. What are some comments you've received about what is surprising, not necessarily mothers, but those that you've met last year from this book?
1: Uh, Well, certainly the themes of feminism are really important to a lot of women. Also, this idea of reproductive rights being an important thing. One of the things I talk about in the book is like, you know, even our reproductive rights movement needs some reframing language. I remember I'm a journalist and I'm a communicator. I'm a storyteller. So the language is a big part of of it for me. And so, you know, we mostly think of reproductive rights as the right not to get pregnant, really important. The right to end an unwanted pregnancy, also important. But what about your right to actually have a baby? not die from that birth and feed what your reproductive organs produced, right? And so, you know, how do we reframe what's going on with birth and breastfeeding as part of the reproductive rights conversation? Um, How do women do that? Because if we're only out fighting for the things, you don't have to use your reproductive organs if you don't want to, very important, but no one is fighting if you choose to actually use them, then we have a huge disconnect. We have a huge disconnect. And so that's a problem. And we cannot have a broad-based women's movement if we're not looking at creating the advocacy and support around all the roles that women will play in their lives. And disproportionately, that is mother. Disproportionately, that is carer. So we really have to view all of these issues as reproductive rights issues because during a woman's reproductive continuum, she will play many roles. It is not just about not, you know, being able to exercise your reproductive freedom. It is also about when you exercise those rights, having the support to do it, right? And to having mm-hmm. the support to feed what your reproductive organs produce, having the support to, you know, to be home, to, to 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 mother those what your reproductive organs produce if you choose to. These are the ways that we can really build a broad-based reproductive rights movement that is built for all women. And people are really resonating with that. And also to say that, you know, particularly here in the US, we've seen a recent assault on reproductive rights. Um and that you know, globally, it is time that as we get ready to fight for that again, that we make sure that we're including mothers and we're including the people on the other side of the spectrum in that conversation. So Mm -hmm. that's really important.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the bias again of black mothers, because Mm -hmm. this is another thing you're focusing on right now. Tell us for black mothers, uh, what's their birthing realities and breastfeeding experience different to a white mother? Like this is something I am not knowledgeable at all. So I thought this was this was interesting to at least talk a bit about so we can become more aware of the realities. Mm -hmm. No, I
1: appreciate Mm -hmm. that. I mean, this is how we all can move forward by having more conversations. So one thing we have to understand is that, you know, the whole pregnancy, birth and breastfeeding spectrum is very different for black women. Um, We know that, of course, many countries that black women are having higher maternal mortality rates. They are more likely to die during uh, or after childbirth. This has recently come out in the UK as well with BAME women, black and minority ethnic women also having disproportionately high maternal mortality rates. I live in New York City, one of, the, you know, greatest cities in the world, one of the most cosmopolitan advanced cities, and in New York City, black women die at 12 times the rate of white women. 12 wow. times. 12 times in New York City. And so when we talk about these issues, we need to understand the scope of it, right? And and much of this, much of these disparities lie within the history of racism and bias, not just in our country, but the ways that that bias kind of permeates societies across the world, right? And so let's talk about the US specifically. We know that when Black women were slaves in this country, that they were stopped from breastfeeding their own children and forced to breastfeed the children of their white slave owners. Now, the slave owners recognized the value of, of breast milk. They viewed the Black women as their property, right, and their children as their property. And they were using that as a way to enhance their own property and benefits. Um, and so Black women had a history of being known as breastfeeders. And so they were used to feed other people's children. And so that created a disruption, because we know that breastfeeding is not just about the food. It's also about that bond, right? It's also about that feeling that you get when you have your baby on your breast. I'm talking about it now, giving myself goosebumps, right? Um, That that connection that you feel to your baby and the fact that black mothers during slavery had that disrupted and that they were forced to provide that to the infants and then the children of their oppressors is something that none of us can understand, right? None of us can understand that. But what we know is that that created a generational trauma. It created a disconnect between that natural mothering experience that black enslaved women were never allowed to have. They weren't allowed to own their children. Their children could be taken from them at any time. They didn't. They could not protect their children. Their children could be beat as viciously as they were, and then sold the next day. And so we really have to understand the complex nature of motherhood, particularly as it relates to breastfeeding. Because what I have found is that there's still a generational disconnect, right? And that even though slavery can feel like 400 years away, we know that many things can get passed on. And really, when we think about segregation, it is you know my 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 father who's alive, grew up in segregation. So it's really just one generation away from us um, that there was this disconnect and this trauma and this idea that, well, breastfeeding was something we were forced to do, something that we did for other people and something that we didn't do for ourselves. And even after slavery, black women were used as wet nurses many times being paid because they were denied other forms of labor. They were forced to do these things as part of the only ways they could survive. And so we can't talk about what's happening to Black women and breastfeeding without understanding that historical trauma. One, and so, and so I always start there. Uh, two, we know that infant formula has been aggressively marketed to Black and brown communities. We saw that in the 70s with Nestle working in African countries, really preying upon poor people in developing lands to the ways that they use uh, low-income nutritional support Uh, programs here in the U.S., such as WIC, to aggressively market infant formula. So we have a a confluence of events that have all led to disparities, racial disparities in breastfeeding Mm -hmm. that have lasted for more than 40 years in the U.S. and are apparent in every country where black people exist. Every country even yours. Um, And so we can't look at this without understanding that. Another thing that I always talk about is also understanding that breastfeeding has been connected to, quote unquote, good motherhood, right? Something that good mothers did. And Black women have been stereotyped as bad mothers. They have been stereotyped as, you know, their children because of racism have not Mm -hmm. been assigned the same value because of the color of their skin. And we see this play out in terms of too many black women saying that physicians never gave them information about breastfeeding. No one bothered to explain to them how it worked. We know that historically La Leche League, through all its good intents and purposes, was located in white suburban neighborhoods. So where was the support? Where was the network for support for breastfeeding? not in low-income Black communities. So again, these are the confluence of factors that have contributed to where we are today and why we take a special opportunity. I am the creator and one of the co-founders of Black Breastfeeding Week, which we celebrate August 25th to 31st every year uh, internationally and have this time of awareness to address what we know is going on in our Black breastfeeding and a way to celebrate the breastfeeding that we know is happening in our community as a way of reclaiming a tradition that Black women had, but was taken from them because of systemic oppression. And then lastly, wanting to mention bias, I've been working on a new app, which is called Earth, which Mm -hmm. is like the word birth, but without the B for bias. So it's I-R-T-H. And it really is a Yelp-like tool where you could find reviews of black and brown women like you. So you'll be able to go into the app when it launches in the fall you can put in who you are, you know, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender, income, etc. And it would generate a review from someone like you. And our goal is to really help inform decision making on the front end so that people, you know, whether you're a same sex couple or a black or Latino woman, or a birthing person, that you can go in and see how providers are being reviewed for their care of people like you. But that also on the back end, we can begin to create data so that we can use as a tool for change, that we can aggregate these experiences and now use it to push hospitals to improve their care practices so that everyone is receiving fair care.
0: Wow, that's amazing. I'm so happy you talked about this because this is something I've, I never hear because I'm white. I've lived in white community my whole life. Yeah, this is this is something uh, I should talk about.
1: I agree. And the other thing that I want to say about Earth is really important to me. I really want Earth to be a tool for white women as well. And it's a tool for allyship. I get excited because white women reach out to me all the time and they say, listen, if, if a physician is not treating black and brown women well, I'm, I don't want to go there either. And I appreciate mm-hmm. that, right? And so how do we look at something like Earth? One, we need white women to share their experiences so we can see any diff- any real differentiation, right? But also that it becomes a tool where white women can share their experiences use it to inform their own decision making so that we as women collectively use our consumer power to address a problem that we know is disproportionately impacting black and brown women. That's what makes me mo- most excited when white women say, I will use earth because I want to let a physician know that if you're not treating black and brown women well, I don't want to go there either, right? And then we have a tool that uses our collective consumer power as women to address it ill, a, a stain, a, a problem that. we know shouldn't exist that's disproportionately killing black women and their babies. And so that's what makes me most excited about Earth. And I invite everyone, if you're not following us on Instagram, the Earth app, check out birthwithoutbias.com, the website, and really get involved um, for all white women to take notice and to participate in what we're doing
0: this app so it will be out this Canadian mothers can they use it or it's right now it's focused for um the United States right now it will be focused on the United States we okay. will be
1: expanding but our expansion for Canada and the UK will likely more happen at the top of 2021 so it's coming but it will like in the fall will just be US
0: you have to start somewhere
1: yes we <laughs> have to start somewhere good. but it has been you know I travel the world and people are like oh my yeah. god we need this here too so it's just a matter of, you know, the technology and the funding to make that happen. So, you know, we'll, we'll keep working on it to make sure that it is something that is global. We know that it is needed in many places and that, you know because racism is not unique to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, Bias on on skin color is not unique to the U.S. And so we need to have these tools to be able to make better decisions and use our consumer power and get some qualitative data to these hospitals and make it public, right? It needs to be publicly accountable. The Mm -hmm. hospitals know what's happening, but it's, it's not public information for everyone to access. So that's really what we wanna do is create a new accountability mechanism and use technology, which as we know has disrupted many industries that have been slow to self-regulate. And perhaps this can be a prod to get the hospitals and providers more in line with what they should be
0: doing. Mm -hmm. So where can listeners find more about you, your books, your articles? You had this online webinar. Will it be available? And if so, until when? So give us all the details, a social media account. Yes. Thank you so much. So yeah, you can learn a lot at Kimberlysealsallers.com.
1: You know, the online series is called the Silver Linings Playbook. It was really important to me that we look at what silver linings might come out of this pandemic and and think about how we could transform the landscape of birth and breastfeeding by looking at one. We know that pandemics historically have been society changing events, kind of one-time windows to do things differently. And that we needed to be prepared to think about what that can mean for women in birth and breastfeeding. And then the whole series will be online and available for people to watch. Um, and so we're excited about that. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at I am letter I-A-M Same for Twitter and same for Facebook. Um, and really, let's just keep the conversation going. Um, that is really important. I mentioned the Earth app. The website is birthwithoutbias.com and then we are um, at the Earth app uh, on Instagram as well as Facebook. And so, you know, these are important initiatives. You know, these are things that need all of us to come together to improve the landscape for all women. And I'm excited about the future.
0: That's amazing. I'll just end with one question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. So we all know that being a mother, a parent is a roller coaster of emotions and experiences, keeping motherhood inspired. What one thing have you found kept you inspired and energized throughout your mom journey? Oh, wow. I mean, so much. Mothering is one
1: of the most important Jobs I've ever had, and I take it very seriously. I think the learning, and you know, I'm I'm a bit of a of, of a nerd, but my <laughs> children, uh, my children have been my greatest teachers. They continually teach me not just about myself, but also about who they are and, and ways to see the world. And I think one of the most exciting things about my motherhood journey has just been the learning. You know, the ways that I've been taught and continue to learn uh, about my children and and about myself and about the the world. And for me, that is incredibly rewarding and exciting
0: thank you for listening to another episode of citrus love keeping motherhood inspired podcast if you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode please share it with them you can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com slash episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guest's or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening. Two, three, four, five, six stars. Whatever you feel reflect podcast. This will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode. And thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye, guys.